Election College, episode number 265, Theodore Roosevelt, part two. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Jason, my good buddy, we're talking here about Theodore Roosevelt, and he is such a massive historical figure that, well, we've talked about him before, and now we're probably going to end up with three episodes about him. And all I know so far that I can remember is just not to call him Teddy. Yeah, that's just about all you need to know. No, that's not true. (laughs) You know, you figure this guy had such the life. And it's easy to say, okay, yeah, he uh, toured the world when he was young and he had it pretty good. He was, you know, homeschooled and that's pretty cushy uh, for the time and was able to take a couple jaunts over to Europe and even the Middle East, but he had his rough times too. Oh yeah, definitely. And no doubt about that, but we're going to keep talking about him. We, we finished up the last episode talking about how he was the New York city police commissioner. And we move into the next piece where the 1896 presidential election is coming up and Theodore Roosevelt backs Thomas Brackett Reed for the Republican nomination. And Thomas Brackett Reed was the Speaker of the House. Well, unfortunately for him, William McKinley wins the nomination and, of course, beats William Jennings Bryan in the general election. And this probably caused him some political issues where he backs one guy and the other guy gets the job. But nonetheless, that's the way the the cards fell. Yeah, so we've got our good buddy. We haven't talked about him a whole lot. Then we might want to dedicate a couple episodes or at least an episode to Henry Cabot Lodge. But yeah, hey, he's a congressman and, you know, he's got a lot of influence that he's wielding. And he says, hey, President McKinley, you need to get this guy Roosevelt to become the assistant secretary of the Navy. And McKinley's like, Henry Cabot Lodge, you know what you're talking about. That sounds like a great idea. So <laughs> this um, happens. And what you need to know is that John D. Long, who's the Secretary of the Navy, he is in poor health. And he's all about the social graces. And Theodore Roosevelt isn't. He's about getting down to business. And Roosevelt says to himself, First, because that's what you should do. You should talk to yourself first. And then he says it out loud. We need to build up our naval strength and build some battleships. And that's exactly what he begins doing. He pushes this viewpoint that the Pacific and the Caribbean or Caribbean, depending on your preference of that pronunciation or pronunciation, we need to have this huge naval presence. And McKinley's like, Okay, let's do that. And while we're at it, let's kick Spain out of Cuba. Right. So basically, there's not a peaceful solution. And President McKinley asks for Congress to say, hey, Spain, we're going to war. That's the Spanish-American War, uh, which is a war 
you don't hear a whole lot about, I feel. Uh, maybe maybe depending on what part of the country you're in or what your history teacher is passionate about. But the Spanish-American War is kind of an understudied war, I believe. And when that happened in late April of 1898, Theodore Roosevelt says, I am resigning as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and I want to go and see some combat. And his wife and all his buddies and probably his co-workers as well were like, please don't do this. We really want you to stay in Washington and, you know, continue to have an effect from here. But he says no. And so there's a new regiment formed and Roosevelt starts getting tons and tons of applications for this new regiment called the Rough Riders. Well, they end up training and, of course, um, going down to fight in the war. And the Rough Riders are pretty much famous and they uh roosevelt has the only horse and you see some images depicting that particular battle uh in uh, kettle hill and uh, he just rides back and forth and continues to command the troops and he's uh really pretty excited to be back uh, to be out there in combat and and he understood that really if you wanted to do something, the only way to inspire others to do it was to do it yourself and to lead them that way. So after the Battle of Kettle Hill and uh, all the other things that were uh, part of that conflict, Roosevelt says, okay, these officers need to be returned home. And home they go. Yeah. One really cool thing about the Rough Riders is I, I, for some reason with Theodore Roosevelt, he's everything but a country music star <laughs> i mean you know you could say he's the westerner or he's the new yorker but definitely not the uh you know country music guy but the rough riders they were like outlaws in-laws crooks and straights you know they were everybody bunch of ivy leaguers bunch of native americans everybody is in that yeah. gang and because of the awesome if depending on your perspective if you're you know on Theodore Roosevelt's side, you're going to say awesome, uh, success that they had there at Kettle Hill, you're going to say, oh my goodness, this guy did amazing things. And people, you don't call him Teddy. You call him the Colonel. Reminds me of another guy I know. <laughs> so after they leave Cuba in 1898, the Rough Riders get transferred back to Long Island. And, of course, there's the fear of yellow fever spreading. So they quarantine them all, and then, you know, they get out eventually. A little while later, Roosevelt is asked to run in the 1898 gubernatorial election. And the people who ask him don't really necessarily actually like him, but they recognize that he is going to be a really strong candidate. And also, you know, the candidates they have in place they really don't like them either. So he's at least a better option than those. He wins the primary and does this on a large part, his war record and the victories he had in war and was able to uh, persuade some people to vote for him. He won by just about 1%, so still a pretty close race. He also uh, held 
two press conferences per day, which of course this has something that had not really been done in the past. And that helped him connect with a lot of people that he may not have otherwise gotten an opportunity to speak in front of or for them to hear what he believed or uh, what he was interested in doing. So it was a good opportunity and a, a new strategy as well. Yeah, he's the ultimate PR guy, really. And he has the ability to get the middle class engaged. And nobody has really done this quite like Theodore Roosevelt. You had William Jennings Bryan. Yeah, he was given the speeches and all of that. But the thing that Theodore Roosevelt did is he connected with the people on practical uh, issues like, well, what do you do with these large corporations? How do you um, handle these big monopolies that were happening? And unlike a lot of his Republican counterparts there in New York, he was pretty much a man of the people. And he thought to himself, because that's what you do, you think to yourself before you say it out loud, right? We've established that. Theodore Roosevelt did that quite often. He positions himself against the excesses of large corporations, but he's not really the guy who's going to be protesting and saying, let's shut the corporations down. And this engages a lot of people into the thinking of, hey, you should run for president. Well, he decides not to challenge William McKinley for the presidential nomination in 1900, because let's face it, McKinley, he's on a roll. And why split up the Republican Party at this point? He begins thinking about running in 1904, but he is holding this very influential position as being the governor of New York. So in 1899, you know this, Vice President Garrett Hobart, which everybody knows who Garrett Hobart is, right? He's one of our most underrated vice presidents because, well, he dies. And this leaves an open spot in the 1900 election. We got our good buddy, Henry Cabot Lodge. He says, Theodore, you need to run for vice president. And Roosevelt was reluctant about doing this because he's the chief executive type. He's not the guy who's going to run second fiddle to some guy from Ohio. But what are the Republicans going to do? Because you've got a very influential vice president who's no longer around. And Roosevelt's rivals in New York decide they need to do all they can to rid New York State of this highly influential governor. So there's this big, huge power struggle between, you know, your traditional New York Republicans and your mavericks, you know, mavericky people like Theodore Roosevelt. They're muting him pretty much by putting him in that role of vice president. But he does it. He runs for vice president. He takes office in March of 1901. And Roosevelt didn't think that that was the greatest place to be, but he does it and he kind of chills out, out in the countryside while McKinley's doing his thing. The two don't really intersect very much. <laughs> so 
he gets in office exactly four days before the main priority the vice president has, you know, being the president of the Senate, four days before they adjourn. So he really doesn't get to do much. And like Jason said, they kind of just silence him. On September 6th, President McKinley goes to the Pan American Exposition where he was assassinated or where he was shot and later passed away. And Theodore Roosevelt is vacationing up in Vermont. Well, when he hears about everything happening, he goes to Buffalo to visit President McKinley. And pretty much everybody's like, yeah, it looks like he's probably going to recover. So Roosevelt's like, sure, I'll just go back on vacation. Uh, Well, McKinley obviously gets worse and Roosevelt travels back to Buffalo. McKinley passes away, uh, you know, the eight or 10 days later after he was shot. And um, Roosevelt is in transit to Buffalo. And of course, he gets sworn in as the nation's 26th president, which is kind of a crazy way to become president, if you ask me. And of course, when he gets into the president's seat, there is no more vice president. And at this time, we hadn't had the ratification of the 25th Amendment, and you know that didn't come for another 60 years or so. So Roosevelt's just like, yeah, I'm, I got this. And he serves his first term actually without a vice president. And of course, you can imagine that a lot of people who are not really sure about Roosevelt, and maybe they were huge supporters of McKinley, or maybe they were opposed to Roosevelt's they're really worried that Roosevelt's just going to change things up. And Roosevelt puts them all at rest and says, no, I'm going to keep things the same as he would have. I'm going to retain his cabinet. But you know what? I am the boss, and you are going to listen to me. So get ready, because I'm running again in four years or a couple years, and you're going to do what I say then. Yeah, and this is where Roosevelt, as you can imagine, he begins to be himself. And what is Theodore Roosevelt being himself? Well, it means that everything from changes in the rules to football games uh, to uh, changing the design on a coin that he uh, didn't care for. And he even, I, I didn't know this, Ben, but he ordered the government printing office to adopt simplified spellings uh, for 300 words yeah so if you're wondering why american english you know it wasn't just during you know webster's day that they standardized english and made it more simple or american english theodore roosevelt he had something to do with that too and he is going nuts with regulating different industries such as coal mining the railroads and a host of other big businesses. You didn't want to be on the bad side of Theodore Roosevelt because he's going to bust you up. Your monopoly, boom, it's gone. <laughs> One of the other things he did really uh, pretty often during his first term was executive orders. And he used a ton of them, but not for like crazy you know, things that wouldn't wouldn't be really widely accepted, or at least doesn't seem like they wouldn't be widely accepted. He used a lot of executive orders to protect forest and wildlife and stuff like that. We start seeing a lot of the national forests really start to thrive and actually become uh, new uh, monuments and new parks and things like that. And he actually uses executive orders to establish 150 million acres 
of reserved forestry land. So uh, he really kind of abused those, but uh, not <laughs> not for too long because Senator Charles Fulton, he they're doing this agricultural appropriations bill. And it seems innocent enough, and this this happens a lot in Congress. And they're just like, we're going to throw this other amendment in here and try to maybe sneak it through that would prevent anyone, or not anyone, but the president from reserving any more land to be a uh, a national park or reserve or anything like that. Well, uh, once they vote on it, Roosevelt finds out about it. And before he signs it, he does sign it. But before he does that, he establishes 21 more forest reserves and uh this brings it up to a a total of 121 forest reserves over 31 states this is a huge deal because you know before that only one other person had used so many executive orders and certainly they hadn't used that many executive orders for something like forests and national parks so it was like a a weird situation where yeah you, you shouldn't be doing this this much shouldn't be doing things out of the normal course of things but at the same time it's like well i mean it's not like he's making giant policy changes he's preserving land so you know mixed emotions yeah it's a big deal it's a big deal because you know a lot of the things that we might take for granted like carving things into the grand canyon or something like that uh is very much frowned upon but at one time people didn't really think too much of it of preservation and here theodore roosevelt he's championing that idea and we think of things as being just a disgrace and it's probably a lot having to do with the way roosevelt has influenced us to this day yeah he he probably i mean we probably wouldn't have a lot of our favorite parks and forests and stuff if it weren't for some of those things he did yeah, they'd probably have a, like malls, shopping malls on top of geysers or something like that. I don't Gross. Know. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to talk to Theodore Roosevelt a decade or so before he became president, you would have had somebody who was very much all about seeing the United States expand and take over territory and really exert itself as a world power. We see when he is serving in his role in the Naval Department, how he builds up the fleet of battleships and um, the United States is only outdone by the number of battleships out to sea by Great Britain. He solidifies a lot of the relationships that are held between the United States and Great Britain. And, you know, the whole uh, peace through strength thing, right? Uh, There's different things that are a shift from what he was like before he was president. He became much more involved in being a peacemaker. He helps mediate a treaty to end the Russo-Japanese War. He does that in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a lovely place to do that. And he uh, receives the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for bringing about the Treaty of Portsmouth. And he becomes known as a world leader in the way that few presidents had up until this time where, yeah, he's getting involved in um, the global scene and he is seen as somebody who your country can go to for peaceful talks. Uh, (laughs) There's one issue in particular that he uh, takes care of that we might take for granted today. And that is the Alaska boundary 
this was hotly contested between the United States and Great Britain. And he resolves this issue, and he says it's, quote, the last serious trouble between the British Empire and ourselves, which is true. You don't see the United States and Great Britain really going after each other on border disputes. Right, exactly, Jason. And in 1902, the Germans, the British, the Italians are trying to get Venezuela blockaded. They want to form a naval blockade and, of course, you know, not let any ships enter out. And this is because Venezuela owns them a bunch of money that's delinquent. And Roosevelt is like, you know that Kaiser Wilhelm guy over in Germany? I'm not real sure what this is all about because maybe he's there trying to do a blockade so that he can, you know, do something else that's kind of shady. And so he works through the process and goes through arbitration and this kind of averts that crisis. But at the time, the Europeans got some stuff. And this is kind of responsible for the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. Remember the Monroe Doctrine? And this is Roosevelt's addition to that, which says that chronic wrongdoing or an impotence which results in the general loosening of the ties of civilized society may in America, as elsewhere, ultimately require intervention by some civilized nation. And in the Western Hemisphere, the adherence of the United States to the Monroe Doctrine may force the United States, however reluctantly, in flagrant cases of such wrongdoing or impotence to the exercise of an international police power. And this is a pretty important piece of history, in my opinion, because we have seen this exercised how many times? A lot. I mean, there's been many times where the U.S. has intervened, um, What, regardless of your opinion on it, has intervened in situations that were not so good. And I think a lot of that attitude can be traced back to this Roosevelt corollary. And certainly the Monroe Doctrine has a an impact on that as well. But Roosevelt really said, look, we do have a responsibility to the entire world to make sure that we are uh, protecting other people and we're going to do it preemptively even sometimes. And of course, we've seen that exercise many times and even recently uh, throughout our history. And uh, this is one of the places it comes from. Yeah, we haven't talked too much about Roosevelt's role with the press as president. Well, he continues exactly what he did in New York as governor, and then also building on McKinley's use of the press. He gives the press their own room inside the executive mansion, aka the White House. And because of this, Roosevelt becomes a daily part of the American people's lives. He's able to reach out with his middle class base. He is able to uh, talk to the elites of the day, um, but he was very quick to expose these scandal-mongering mon- journalists who would, um, you know, be kind of like the tabloids of the day. And while Roosevelt usually wasn't the target of these tabloids, he really went after the, should we say, fake news? And he he was pretty vicious. I would imagine that Theodore Roosevelt would be quite vicious on Twitter. He'd probably just let her fly. But uh, there was an instance where the press targets Roosevelt. In 1904, he was criticized uh, by the media for his facilitation of the construction of the Panama Canal. And 
he goes after Joseph Pulitzer's New York world. And they accuse Roosevelt of, uh, quote, deliberate misstatements of fact. And Roosevelt's not having any part of it. The Justice Department intervenes and uh, helps Roosevelt out in dealing with the press. So if you're a member of the press, don't mess with TR because he's going to bust you up just like he did Monopolies. Anyway, there's a lot more to be said about Theodore Roosevelt. We got some exciting elections coming up. We have the end of his life coming up, and that's the reason we're going to have a part three. Yeah, so just like Theodore Roosevelt called out fake news, we want you to call out fake news in the form of positive reviews. Uh, I don't know how that works. That was a beautiful segue. If we have bad reviews, we want to make sure that you counteract them by good reviews. So, So head on over to iTunes, whether or not you use iTunes, and leave us a little review, just a nice something something to, you know, make us feel nice inside. We could write a script for everybody. We could. Yeah. Have them recite sure it get verbatim. Get flagged by iTunes or anything at all. It, uh, maybe. <laughs> I think it would go viral, though. It's possible. Hey, sure. speaking of going viral, you can interact with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us at Election College. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time for part three of Theodore Roosevelt. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.